This is only the truth, and it will not change you. You have been graven before you got here, before you listened to me. Yet again, I will always see you differently, as unchangeable as you are now. The shapes off your many surfaces will never resemble anything else, so long as I keep moving the light. The Censor by Seth Brady Chapter 1. Cosmogony It was like sunlight that shot over the hole. There was nothing living and there was not even stone in the earth, but there was an impenetrable hot light crashing over and against itself. It was not precise and it didn't bother with anything else but itself, because there was nothing else anywhere for it to touch. It expanded beyond the sight of the keenest eye in open space and it had no reason to give up its play. It was the most terrific affirmation, because it agreed wholly with everything. This heat continued for a time longer than all ages combined, and then the fire woke from its troubled sleep. A face which was always there woke up into sharp-eyed restlessness. It was the face of Yos, the first. Yos, the son of the deep well. The overflowing ladle that is carried in the human heart spoke sense into the blazing void, commanding the fire away into the furthest distances. They were scattered then, so distant and numerous that they were each as minute and bright as a moat. Beneath his wide feet was stamped out the remainder of the fire, so that a great plain of stone was brought up. Disclosed on the brightening ground was a host like the harem of a kindly king, Tebul, Hedel, Sechel, Kaibul, Gudin, and Dinia were their names, and Yos was the first to witness their loveliness. Tebul was both thin and full, with brown hair and limbs composed of the earth. Hedel was tall, built thick and heavy with bound copper hair and copper limbs. Sechel was small, with hollow cheeks and curly hair and limbs built of blackened char. Kaibul was keen-eyed, dark-skinned, but with an inner brightness and her limbs were made of unpolished pig iron. Gudin was tall like Hedel, but as thin as a birch and twice as white-skinned, with piercing, overpowering, beauteous, mossy eyes and limbs composed of woven reeds. Dinia, the least, was not beautiful in Yosa's eyes. She was bent, wide-boned, malformed, and made of every bad feeling. She had no limbs, but arms and legs of the same red of her skin, Poor Dinia was set adrift by the scorn of her sisters and by the disgust festering in Yosa's eyes. She left the host and went into the dead plain, where only the damned sometimes glimpse her. 
In her absence, the host celebrated the reality of the ground beneath their feet, which was warm and smooth as if polished by the surf. As they danced under Yosa's burning yellow light, the stones cracked open and they shouted their delighted laughter as green shoots and ashen seedlings grew from the ground. Even as they were gasping their surprise, the cracking and the growing was extending all across the endless stone. At this, they began shouting their names in musical harmony and started leaping onto the newly grown carpet of grass. Tebel. She swayed her hips and the plants grew more numerous and of many more forms. Beasts of all types leapt from the shadows of the trees and delighted in the freshness of the world. Hedel. She stamped both feet and the earth itself became alive, spitting its own fire and breath. Sechel. She waved her charred arms and black hair and the air grew sweeter and blue. Kaibel. She dug her iron hands into the earth and disclosed the plurality of stones hidden there. Gudin. She, the queen amongst the host, jumped the height of Yos and was enveloped in his desire, as he was in hers. Their congress burned in daylight like a fire in nighttime, and they rose to heaven to create their kingdom. Rain fell from the pluming clouds rushing from the light, and the earth was fed with the first rainfall. This was not the rainfall accustomed to by most, but a rainfall consisting of all the water that has ever run through the earth and sustained the green life on it. So voluminous it was that it filled the deepest, vastest plains and quenched them for an eternity, and the torrents carved channels through the indestructible stone. Above this tumult, which began to take the familiar shape of earth, Yos presided. He saw the disorder of this creation, and he felt that any credit that would be due to him may name him as a dead force, rather than a substantial voice. So, to fragment and add more facets to his being, he stood in his celestial terrace, amongst his enthralled and lovely host, and stepped both to the left and to the right, while simultaneously staying still. Because there was no limitation that would augment his course, there now in his company was Baita, the planetary stonemason, and Dramtur, the supreme artist. They were both him, and they were lesser, but they were necessary. Baita's course was certain here, for he could see the true shape of the earth in the perfect order that was ordained by Yos, and he set forth to hewing the wild rock into that shape. As Baita drove into this simple task, which was set before him as a road is set to a draft animal, Thramtor was given a more nuanced purpose. He was to look on the animals of earth, the ones brought forth by the Lady Tebel, and reassemble them into a being more like the celestial host. So, setting his eyes on a bald, creeping creature that eschewed the light and shrank from its brethren, he raised the creature to his two back feet and ordained that its front legs were no longer for walking. Combining his voice with that of Yos, he said that these limbs must be tools for crafting and for the labors of life, for the earth must have a wise and capable custodian. However, this proved to be merely the first day in his plan, for Yos and his companions would observe the newly made men cruelly and stupidly mistreat their own limbs. In the freshly created intelligence these men were given, they were overly ambitious and frivolous with their flesh, and so permanently damaged them. He, and Baita, and Dramtor, and all the fair host, 
saw men amputate themselves, scald their arms, skin, and die from cuts to the feet, and they did not think to stop their foolish behavior. So, Yost took these wasteful men and cast them into a faraway land, so that they might while away their own existence and never again torment his eyes. However, he took the most beautiful and discerning man and woman from this set, who were named Jaka and Weena, and carefully removed their arms and legs, so that the flesh on their stumps would not bleed, and he gave them to the care of Dramtor. In the custody of the supreme artist, Jaka and Weena learned how to craft arms and legs for themselves, and how to pass this knowledge to their children. He impressed on them the knowledge of plants and animals which they shall fashion to these limbs, and ways in which they shall fix them to their bodies. So did the lives of men begin in earnest, and were the father and mother of all people on earth set onto earth without the benefit of civilization. This was shown in time, as the children of these Jaka and Weena were sundered by innumerable and dreadful feuds, and then their diaspora began so that they might survive. The story of these feuds, heroics, atrocities, and miracles were told in great detail over the course of the Benath, which is the account of God's creation. But this story is only about one place. Further, it is more particular than that. It is only about one person who lived in the footprint of Yos. Chapter 2 The Incense Burner There, between the dead stone and the unending ocean, was built the city of God. There it was, built into the lime and hanging into the roiling water, a cut diamond with infinite facets. There it was for thousands of years, built into the great basin of Gudentoig, where King Thudes recognized it as Yosa's own footprint. There it was within the affairs of men, where after the Baxons came in from the south and the Bashta came in from the north, they did not meet in battle but in newfound friendship. Most in the city were of these two tribes, and there was also the Hosia, who had been there forever. For this reason, the city was called Hosia Bayan. The stories of the Kalido and the Baxons are well understood, but the Hosia have kept their secrets and chief among these secrets were that of Yos, the invisible father of everything. Other tribes believed him to only be the brother of these two mighty fathers, the stonemason Baita and the supreme artist Ramtur. It was a small tragedy that the stonemason was forgotten in his original reverence, but the greater tragedy was that the supplicants of Ramtur, the Taramkuts, continued their folly into perpetuity. The Hosia, who loved Yos for the truth in his creation, were ultimately victorious against the Taramkuts in their struggle for truth, and the city of God became Hosyabain at that point. It was at first like the cleansing force that renews a woman each month, carrying the clotted stagnation from its fertile earth. The basilicas of the Hosia began to outnumber the temples of the Taramkuts, and it left the city holy and clean. Then... Kotal marched across the dead stone and surrounded Hosyabain from the northern forest to the southern bay. Kotal Beskig, 
who was an old king in the River Stitch kingdom of Wentekia, had with him five thousand swords and five thousand spears. His derisive cousins threw aspersions onto his desires of taking the holy city with such a dearth of soldiers. But Kotal heeded only his personal god, and that was the god of his fear that some people did not worship him. So, against the jeering of his impudent family, he forced ten thousand men across the weltering desert. The Kali Desert was at a time called a country of want for its vastness and drought, but it was more like a world in of itself, another realm set outside of earth by Yos himself to punish the foolish. One thousand men died on Kotal's crazy march, their bodily water soured and evaporated like spilled wine. Another thousand set against each other in dishonorable murder and fled the ranks to find a lonely death or to carry away their comrades' butchered flesh so they could sate their hunger with an atrocity. It is said that those deserters who were not hunted down by Kotal's loyal soldiers fell in with the company of Dinia, who amassed an army of waylaid fools to march against Yos and his wives. She had all of Kotal's horde in her sight and could have laid a blanket of death over all of them and their king, but she saw their wicked sport and knew it would lead to sorrow for her enemy. So, she parted the dusty maze that was the Khalit and allowed that no more of the invaders should die in her realm. So then did Kotal Beskig set his oak-wrought warlord's foot on the green hills above Hosyabain. Even to the wicked was that city a clear and high-lit spectacle from the hills of Kaiwird, where grapevines, yambesk trees, and yanana roots grew as if they were in God's kingdom. There again stood Hosyabain cleverly barred from invaders by swift-moving news and the shutting of a great eastern gate. The reckless campaign of Kotal might have been routed there, for his army was beginning to give voice to their fears. Hosyabain, as it could be seen from the hills, was not a city that one could siege from land, for a great part of its pastures were between much of the city and the ocean. Though they had the rich hills under their hard-limbed feet, they could not set a satisfactory stranglehold on their prey. The city of God did not have a king. Long had King Thud's dynasty been extinguished with no viable heir, and another family had yet to feel arrogant enough to replace that honored house. Therefore, when Ekamegoi, who was Thud's grandson of seventeen generations and after sixteen intervening monarchs, died an ancient bachelor, the gentry of the Hosea spoke with the king's voice. It was this uppermost caste, called the Tsotsi by that proud city's people, who determined that they had nothing to gain from a prolonged presence of unfriendly soldiers trampling their prized fields. A son of Ekamegoi might have been imprudent enough to disregard this plight and wait out the siege, but those who felt immediately the winnings and loss of the city were now the king's in fact. Even as Kotal became convinced of the futility and as his swords were being sheathed, an emissary of Yikin, a great lord and merchant of the city, entered their camp with an invitation. This was too incredulous in their eyes. It was an asinine prank, they figured, and they would kill the man outright for his boldness. Look at that. The gate from where I embarked, it stands open with no gods, the emissary explained with some fear. The lords of the city welcomed the king of the rim. 
Kotal was roused from his tent by the shouting. Soldiers were brandishing their swords and hoisting their spears in anticipation for an easy plunder. He pushed past the undisciplined rabble and shoved the hairy emissary aside to see the object of excitement. In that dread moment, the emissary was certain that his lords had doomed the city, rather than deliver it from war. The king from the eastern rivers gave the open gate the briefest glance before regarding again the rich, protected orchards beyond the city. There was an innovation available at this time, one that would feed and flourish his ranks for eons, and these wild soldiers would not see it. Kotzol commanded a march, stamping his feet and bellowing at his men for quiet. When the quiet did not come as quickly as he would it, he personally slew the loudest man. The men fell into line for the first time in weeks, and began marching towards the city. Though he was unseen from the hills, a man appeared to Kotal's horde as the gate loomed. As they neared, Kotal himself pushed past the vanguard and approached so to better see the horseless man who would stand in his path after so many armed guards had fled to the barracks. He was clothed plainly with rude limbs bare, holding the gleaming censer of Yos by his drawn, bearded face. The censer was earthen and glazed with some ocean-blue enamel, and the fire from which its smoke plumed was overbright and difficult to look upon. He spoke to Kotal. This is Host Shabane, you who rule mightily from the center of the world. It flourishes in an unimpeded way, and will be happy even as it gives you its bread and yarn stuffs. The Kotal heard this and asked, Your city is a terrific fountain of God's wealth, grandfather. What is your name? The old man took a long time to speak, but did so before Kotal could rejoin in impatience. He said, Pabo. This was the title for the archbishop in Ahosia Abbey, but Kotal did not know this, speaking as little of the Kalito language as he did. He took it as the old man's given name though no one besides the Pabo's mother ever knew that name. Kotol gave Pabo his famous smile and said, My name is Beskig, the Kotol of Wentekia. Wentekia is the largest country in the world, and I will become twice as great when it brings Hosea Bain under his protection. I will do this, for I am not only the head of the Fertile Rim, but its far-reaching hand as well. That hand will not reach out and grasp this realm to devour it, but it will make it as fine and mighty as it ought to be. I am now the greatness that is this city. The old man's countenance did not change at these words, and the Kotal went on. Do not mistake in my meaning, good Pabo. This is my city now, but it will always be God's city. At that, the censer, which had been held so steadily, quaked somewhat in the Pabo's simply limbed hands. In the eyes of the horde and of the onlooking citizens, the greatness of the old patriarch seemed to diminish as if the man had become smaller, in fact. Pabo himself had the sense of falling, childlike, into Gudin's woven arms, safe in the love of the light. The startling tremor in his hand stayed for a moment, and all eyes rested upon that settling censer. The light was even brighter, as if of fired sulfur, and gave off a holier sense than had ever been breathed in the abbey. Kotol was blinded, his eyes held fast by the gleaming thurible that the Pabo raised to the mounted king with a steady hand. 
He took the clay piece in his hands and kissed the six-pointed star graven on it. It was as hot as a stovetop, but it did not burn his lips. It seemed a grotesque thing to most of the onlookers on both sides, because the meaning was not lost on them. Even as the worn, desert-pruned invaders and the robed, bronze and hickory-limbed citizens relaxed their grimacing mouths, Hosebane was now given a new lord, and the change would be one that they would not see, nor understand, nor approve of if they could grasp it. Someone will find a place for my men to stay, I hope. As Kotal departed in search for the grandest building within the walls, he examined the pebble one more time. He was even older than he had seemed at first. He would probably die before another year. The Censor is a podcast that was written and narrated by Seth Brady and with music by Noah Pardo. Thank you for listening.